Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Nicole Alexander is an acclaimed voice in Australian rural fiction, and her latest book, Stone Country, hit the top 10 bestseller lists within days of release. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Nicole talks about giving up a career in fashion to return to her roots as a fourth-generation grazier, and about the vivid and visceral landscapes that give her work such a strong sense of place. But before we get to Nicole, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Nicole's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review so others will find us too. But now, here's Nicole. Hello there, Nicole, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Lovely to be on your show. Look, I always start with the same question. I don't think it's a boring one. And that is, was there a once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if there was, was there a certain catalyst for it? Uh, There was a catalyst. I guess I grew up um, on a rural property surrounded with a lot of readers and storytellers. And my father used to sort of sit around the dining room table with us and regale us with all these wonderful stories um, from the past that have been, you know, come down through the generations. And one of those stories was the actual settlement of our property. So my great-grandfather selected our land in 1893 and he chose a site for the homestead near the banks of a creek in that area. And in those early days he had some men with him and They spent their time cutting timber and building fences and shepherding the sheep which they'd overlanded from another property to the east. Now, we're talking 1893. So as you can imagine, the days and nights would have been equally long. And I always imagine that the monotony would have been quite extraordinary. And that monotony was apparently only broken by the monthly arrival of the postal and supply rider who arrived on horseback, delivering mail and sort of, you know, other essential goods to those remoter settlers. And one thing that was delivered to my great-grandfather in that first year of settlement was a book. And it was a copy of Alexander Dumas' The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm -hmm. And it actually arrived wrapped up in brown paper and twine inside a saddlebag on the back of a pack horse. And, you know, when I think about that year, 1893, and the arrival of that novel, I can just sort of, you know, imagine his excitement and I see him reading it by the light of probably, you know, a flickering candle and sitting beneath this fat, lazy moon and the bush stretching out around him in this really engulfing silence. And that story, I heard it, you know, at a very early age, And that's one of the reasons why sort of when I got a little bit older, I started considering the possibility of eventually 
writing about our pastoral history. Yeah, and it, it, it sparks a question in my mind, what made your great-grandfather go there? What, what did he do before he decided to go way out there? Well, they actually, um, my father's side of the family came from, from Ireland. So they went across to New Zealand first, oh. Jenny. <laughs> we weren't and, good enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not quite sure, but they'd they'd heard that um, there'd been problems with, with the Maori Wars, etc. cetera. Yes. Um, and I think that there was a, a little bit of a concern there. So they basically, and there were a lot of Irish, obviously, as you would know, that came across to, to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, particularly sort of, you know, in from early 1800s on, but particularly after, you know, the, the famine and then the repercussions from that. Mm. So by the time they then left New Zealand and then came to Australia, they arrived in South Australia and then travelled northwards basically. And my great-grandfather was one of the first people to take up land along the Murray River under the Robertson Land Act in 1861. Oh. Yeah, and he was there for a couple of years and then... I guess he was just a wanderer because he continued going northwards, picked up, you know, his wife along the way, my great-grandmother, and then they ended up on a property eventually that was sort of on the Tablelands area of northeastern New South Wales. And they were there for quite a few years and then they were concerned about um, foot rot in sheep, so he decided to go a little bit further to the west to a drier area which he certainly did do, slightly drier area, and that's where, yeah, that's where the family's been ever since. And he died in 1903 and he's actually buried on our property. Oh, gosh, that's amazing. So with a background like that, it's probably not surprising that your publishers dubbed your first book from being Australia's newest bush storyteller. And that story, The Bark Cutters, was very quite quite close to your family history, I think, wasn't it? Um, yeah, a, a part of it was. So the bar cutters was interweaving narrative, two distinct time frames, so, you know, sort of mid to late 1800s and then a more contemporary section, 1980s, and it did follow the life of generational grazing families from sort of, you know, arriving in Australia, establishing a property, and then the generations after that. So that idea of, you know, ancestors on you know ancestors on the land and that you're literally very aware of the fact that you're really only a custodian of that property for the next generation mm. um so yeah so most certainly there were snippets of my own background in that but I have to say that all the rest of it is made up <laughs> <laughs> yes but you've stayed true to that particular theme through nine books you're very much the rural storyteller and family saga aren't you yeah so I suppose I do try and bring those personal relationships into stories. I mean, many stories are anyway, as we know. Um, people don't necessarily like their work, I suppose, to be classed as family sagas. But for me, those that interpersonal dynamic between family members, particularly when you're, in most cases, talking about um, running a business in rural Australia, I think it's important to bring those, those threads together. Mm. I actually love family sagas, so I, I wouldn't object to the... <laughs> to the description at all. Um, you yourself, you, I think you went away, you grew up on, a, on that property and, and you had a very unusual childhood in terms of, you know, education through correspondence school, that kind of thing. But then you went away for a number of years and made the decision to come back. Yes, I did. So, um, yes, yeah, so 
primary school for us is, um, I guess, from age, I'm probably going to be wrong with these these um, numbers here. I think it's sort of like five through to 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. Is that the same as New Zealand? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, those first few years, mum taught us around the dining room table. So we got um, received our lessons through the mail from Blackfriars Correspondent School in Sydney. And then I went to local primary school for a couple of years to get used to mixing with, with more children, basically, because most of the time I was just playing with my two brothers and sister mm. on the property. And then I went to boarding school in Sydney and then, then university. And I actually had a couple of years working in Singapore in fashion, um, and I started doing a lot more writing when I was working in Singapore as well. And when I came back to Australia, I was actually offered a role, marketing role of the National Trust, which was a great, you know, great opportunity, mm. obviously. Mm. And, and I actually rang up my parents and, and I said to my dad, Dad, look, I've been offered this great job, blah, 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 et cetera. And he said, that's great, well done. But he said, have you ever thought of coming home and being involved in your own family's business because we've been around for a while too? So he guilted me, basically, I guess, into coming home. (laughs) So that's how I ended up back on the property. And my decision sort of making behind that was, look, I'll come back for 12 months. Yes, I wouldn't mind a break because I have been living in Singapore for three years. And, you know, I'll just see, you know, relax and enjoy being back and involved in the family business for a short period of time. But, of course, that's like 20 years ago now, so I never left. <laughs> um, and I just, I don't know, I guess the longer I stayed on the property, the more I really enjoyed being involved in a family business away from the, you know, the corporate constraints and restraints that can happen in that world and the politics as well to a certain extent. But I had entered a very, you know, 20 years ago, agriculture was still a very male-dominated society back then. Now there's all these wonderful roles for women in agriculture, everything from, you know, if you want to be a chopper pilot and go to the top end and muster, help muster cattle, you can do that. Similarly, if you want to, um, you know, study agronomy, soil health, that type of stuff. I mean, there's some wonderful opportunities there for women. But certainly when I came home, I know within a couple of months of my arrival, I heard our head stockman make a comment to my dad and he said she won't stay for very long, you know, and she'll just, you know, hang around for a couple of months and then head back to the latte set in Sydney. And my dad didn't say anything and I thought, wow, you know, they just obviously don't think that I'm cut out for this type of life. And I'm the type of person that likes the challenge. So I thought, hmm, I might just stay for a little bit longer. <laughs> I, I think it's rather wonderful that your dad would have been the one to even suggest it. I mean, you did have brothers as well, didn't you? Yes, absolutely. But um, I've got two, I have two brothers, but neither of them were sort of, you know, particularly interested in taking it on as something, you know, as a full time career, put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay. And I loved that letter that you did publish online, the letter to your 29-year-old self, talking through some of the thoughts that you had when you were making that decision. It was a very real personal thing, wasn't it? Well, it was because I had, you know, a lot of friends saying, oh, Nick, you know, you really, you have been, you know, in the city environment for a long time now. Um, Do you think it's the right decision to go back to the country? I mean, we are sort of, you know, eight and a half hours drive northwest of Sydney. Um, we're 100 kilometres mm-hmm. from the nearest major town. Mm. So I think they thought, and, and, you know, and my background had been, you know, I'd 
I'd done some different things, but part of that background had been fashion, including some modelling too. So I thought, I think they all thought she's so unsuited to this. It's certainly Uh, a very different world, isn't it? Yeah, it is, most definitely. But look, I really enjoyed it. I did take the view that, you know, well, I have to say that I, I learned very quickly that in order to be taken seriously by the men that I was working with, I really had to try and come to grips with how everything worked, even if I couldn't quite you know, accomplish everything because of my physicality. Mm. And I think that from that point of view, it took quite a long time to be accepted. didn't make any difference that I was, you know, boss's daughter um, by any stretch of the imagination. It did take time to be accepted, but I think in that length of time, there was a lot more respect on both sides as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because of that. Um, And I didn't have, when I first went back, I thought, wow, why don't they just, you know, treat me as, as... one of the teams, so to speak. But it's a different dynamic out there. First of all, you have, you know, older men working with younger women. And 20 years ago, that was a problem for some people when they used to be, you know, working in very gender-specific roles as well. Mm. So it does take time for people to get used to different ideas. You know, as we all know, not everyone's comfortable embracing change. Now, I don't know if this is a stereotype, but I gather you, I imagine you did grow up riding horses and that quite a bit of this work you were doing would involve riding. Would that be right? Look, I rode tyres about 15 or, or 15 or 16. Um, and then after that, we actually started, you know, using motorbikes yeah, and, yeah. and quad runners, quad bikes and things like that. The reason being is that unless we were walking cattle a long distance, it was a lot easier to just jump on a bike and go and do the job. Yes. Um, certainly, um, you know, the, the few times that we were using helicopters for mustering cattle, there were horses involved then. But once again, I was usually on a bike. Yes. Because we're, if you're on the ground, everyone's got handheld walkie-talkies so you can hear what's happening and the chopper pilot can actually speak to us on the ground as well and tell us which direction that, you know, the herd's heading in. Um so, yes, so for me it was a lot easier to zip around on a bike. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas some of the other, con- you know, stockmen contractors that were brought in for, for larger jobs, they were much happier being on horseback. So now you are the director of that family business now, are you? Is, is that how it works? Well, I'm, I'm just the business manager really. Mm. So mm. Um, up until a couple of years ago, two years ago actually, I was working on the property pretty much full time and then writing in the evenings and on the weekends whenever I could fit it in. I used to have one of those little, you know, notebooks that you keep in your breast pocket to make notes. So if I thought of some, you know, wonderful pearl of wisdom for the next work, I'd be able to note it down. But invariably I'd leave it on the dash of, you know, one of the trucks, one of those other stockmen would take it to tally up stock numbers or whatever, I'd never see it again. So I took the view I'd have to, you know, try and remember everything where, when and where I could. So I was a working partner and then also I was doing a lot of the book work as well. Um, so that sort of morphed into being the business manager yes. eventually. Yeah. And then the last couple of years we actually downsized because my father became ill. So we sold some of our holding. And because we have downsized, that means that I'm not required on the property as much anymore. So I don't live on the property now. I actually live in the town of Moree, and when I go out to the property, it's a 220-kilometre commute. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, round trip to get out there. So I go out there sort of, you know, a couple of days a week when required because we've got a manager out there. And I guess you're pretty much writing full-time, are you? 
Well, I'm writing, well, sort of, like, you know, even though I'm not working on the property full-time, um, like all businesses, you know, yeah. we're the same with, yeah. with the paperwork yeah. that has yeah. to be done. Your yeah. life is filled with, you know, bureaucracy and, and doing, you know, paper shuffling. Yeah. So there's still a lot of that and I still am liaising with contractors and, you know, our agronomists when it comes to, you know, the cropping side of, side of the business farming. Um, but we're predominantly Hereford cattle now, beef cattle. So because of that, it doesn't require as much hands-on to when we had merino sheep and we're a very big cropping enterprise as well. Sure. So, yeah, so from a writing point of view, I, I basically how it works is that once I know my submission date for a novel and I've done, hopefully done, you know, quite a lot of research because I am very much research orientated, I then have to literally do about 5,000 words a week to keep on schedule, which is very difficult when you're touring because I have five weeks of touring this year. I've done 10 days in Queensland. Um, I'm down here in Sydney for two weeks. And then in May I go to South, they're sending me to South Australia. So, um, and the publisher obviously arranges all of that. You just sort of get your itinerary and off you go. But then you have to build that into your writing schedule and what's happening with the family business as well. So it can get, it, you know, it's a real juggling act as it is for everybody, but it, it can sort of get a bit, you know, difficult as far as, you know, time apportioning, obviously, trying to fit everything in. Yes. Now, that book that you're talking about is your most recent one, Stone Country. That, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's a story built around the idea of, of a male heir of a family station being forced to marry a woman that he barely knows to restore the family's reputation. Quite an interesting sort of twist on an, on a trope that's common in romance where the woman's forced to marry. Um, and I wondered if you were just as comfortable writing male protagonists as female ones. Yeah, most definitely. Um, most of my novels, they've sort of always had very strong female protagonists yeah. in them, in the majority. Mm. But then I've also had very strong male characters as well. We are talking about the interior of Australia. So pioneers, same as in New Zealand, I would imagine, very tough, resilient characters. I mean, they were literally going out into these very um, remote areas and then trying to you know, create a home for their families, uh, literally carving a path for themselves into the bush and trying to establish themselves. Sort of, you know, if we're talking 100 years ago, even maybe 80 years ago in some areas of Australia. So, yes, certainly I am used to sort of crafting strong men and women. I guess the difference with Stone Country is that I took my, you know, lead character and his name is Ross, Ross Grant, and I decided to basically make the story about him, about one character and follow his life for a period of about 40 years, which was interesting because obviously I, I, I hadn't sort of done anything like that before. When I was crafting Ross, I had this one word in my head, which was duality. Mm -hmm. So duality is obviously, you know, war and peace, love and hate, good and bad. So I was thinking about it in terms of the duality of human nature, some of the decisions that we make or decisions imposed upon us. So with Ross being forced to marry his brother's fiancée, and this is because his brother is actually goes to the Great War, goes missing and then is branded a coward, and Ross's family are just so dismayed by Alistair's lack of honour 
that they coerce him to marry, coerce him into marrying Darcy. This is Alistair's fiance. And Ross does this very reluctantly, but he has been treated fairly poorly by his family in the past growing up. He hasn't had the greatest of childhoods. So he's learnt to a certain extent to barter his family's demands with his own needs. So he agrees to this rather um, unusual situation, but it's on the condition that he can fulfil one of his own ambitions, and that's actually to go north to the Territory where his family have a cattle property which was purchased sight unseen, which wasn't unusual when we're talking about sort of, you know, the pastoral history of, of the Northern Territory, which is actually very closely linked with South Australian history as well. So he wants to go up there and see this property that no one's ever set foot on. So I think from a crafting point of view, I was very aware of the fact that, you know, Ross is caught between this woman he's forced to marry and then eventually down the line he does actually meet somebody else. During the course of the narrative, he really has to overcome all these obstacles that are thrown at him, not only by his family's demands but also some of his own poor decision-making. So I guess for me it was very much an exercise in, in trying to find Ross's tipping point during the course of the narrative. I literally had him on a circus high wire and was trying to, you know, have my character keep his balance and then realising that probably at some point in his life something was going to happen where he may well fall. Yeah, yeah. Look, Australian rural fiction has grown into a huge category over this decade that you've been writing, and many of your books have hit the bestseller category. Um, have you seen a lot of changes over that time you've been writing, and why do you think the country is so popular in what is basically an urban population? Well, I think um, as far as changes go, when my book first came out, um, of this new wave of um you know, sort of people writing about or people writing rural literature. We were that new wave that sort of, you know, it was only myself, I guess, and a couple of other authors. Um, when I was, I guess, going forwards from that now, I'm one of the few people that are actually writing in the genre that are, actually have, um, you know, a very strong rural background and are still heavily involved in, in a family business that's based in rural Australia. Since then, we've seen a lot of authors come in um, that may or may not have had that background to some degree, and they're very—they're much more in the romance category. Yeah, yeah. These days, you see a lot of rural writers that are sort of over with, you know, publishers such as Harlequin, etc., and Mirror. Yes. Um, so I think that the romance angle is very strong. Um, my works of the class now is more popular fiction because they have adventure, drama, etc. Maybe there's mystery, there might be, there's, you know, quite often love in there as well, but it's certainly, they're not certainly classed as a straight romance anymore. So I think um, that's what I've seen really, this divergence across into rural romance. And also I've seen quite a few authors that sort of came into the marketplace a couple of years after I started being, were writing longer length fiction, and then they've also dropped off. So it's sort of, we've had this sort of rise in rural literature in Australia, but it's had its peak. Uh-huh. And now we're sort of starting to see authors sort of diverging out into other areas, basically. But my thing has always been pastoral history, and, and that's my background. And 
I love writing about it. I'm just fortunate that um, people enjoy my work. Stone Country hit the top 10 bestseller list in Australia, so um, which I, you know, which is exciting for me, obviously, Jenny. But the thing that interests me about it the most is that, you know, in Australia, people love crime, um, and they like, you know, more contemporary stories, etc. So for a book that talks about Australia's pastoral history to be in that bracket, I think is is interesting that, you know, the sort of breaking out and, and there's there's bigger stories and people are more interested in stories set in rural Australia. So you have that interest because it's beyond the Great Dividing Range. So getting back to your question mm, regarding mm, more urban-based mm, readers. Mm. Um, so that's interesting, unique. If you went back about 40 years ago, you would have had a lot of people who still had the opportunity to go and visit grandparents on family farms or little holdings, et cetera. That doesn't happen so much anymore because of population growth and because obviously families change and, you know, divulge over time, divert over time, et cetera. Um, so, yes, I just think there's a general interest in this life on the other side that to some people can be a romantic ideal of how Australia was and for other people could simply be, well, I'd just like to learn a little bit about that lifestyle. And I think particularly over the last two years, because the drought here in Australia has been in, in the news quite a lot, and that's probably piqued people's interests um, insofar as what's happening beyond the mountains, food security, how it's going to affect us in more urban areas. So I think there's a whole heap of things that come in. And then, of course, at the end of the day, some people simply like, as most readers do, a damn good read. Yes, you've also been very much praised for, for quotes. One reviewer called them your vivid and visceral landscapes. And I think just having the sense of it's such an, a, a singular sort of country, isn't it? And to have it represented on the page in such a vivid way that you feel you're there, I think that's one of the reasons I'd read your books. I, I can't yeah. spend much time there, but on the printed page, I can really get a sense of what it's like. Yeah, so for me, it's always been very important to um, portray the land as a character in all of my novels. So, uh, you know, the land, you know, Mother Earth, is it's a living, breathing thing. And I guess from my point of view, because of my rural background, um, all farmers are observers. We're observers of, you know, the pasture, the state of the pasture, the weather, the trees, the livestock, the wildlife, etc. So we're always very aware of our environment all the time because it's our home, but it's also our, obviously our business as well. So it's a, and it's a fine line between maintaining the environment and running a family farm as well. So for me, that then becomes vital that I go out into the field, which obviously also feeds like my inner Indiana Jones as well, because I'm a bit of an outdoorsy girl, <laughs> and and getting out and getting a great sense of the environment. So one, it, it's only background to the story, obviously, but for me it's a tapestry on which the story is unfolding. So it's just so important that everything I see and hear and feel when I'm, when I'm out doing this research is then on the page so the reader can actually experience what I've experienced. And then, of course, the other thing that goes on from that is giving a work a very strong sense of place. Yeah. Because it's a sense of place that defines us as individuals. So, you know, we remember our childhood homes, where we went on holidays, um, maybe our favourite overseas destination if we've been fortunate enough to travel abroad. 
And it's all those things that we remember and really do give us that strong sense of place. So I have to look at the landscape that way and put it in my novels because the majority of my novels are set um, in some, you know, extraordinary different country across Australia. And for me, I guess because I am a fourth-generation grazier, it's important for me to celebrate that as well. Yeah, look, that leads on really nicely. I mean, I like to ask this question of, of writers who have a very strong sense of place. If, if your readers wanted to do a sort of magical mystery literary tour of some of the territory that you write about, what, where would they go? What, how would they do it? I suppose the distances still would be immense, but could you give us a little 10-day tourist guide for where to go? Wow, yeah. Well, I mean, as you pointed out, it's distances, I guess, yeah. that makes it a little bit difficult to see a lot at one time. Yeah. If you were going to the top end of Australia, you'd literally probably either, depending where you're flying in, near some seaboards, you'd either fly directly into Sydney and then you'd have to get a flight to Darwin or you can fly into Darwin itself. And then from there, you could walk around the old, old port settlement of Darwin because it is a port city and then down into, say, Kakadu National Park and Arnhem Land. You could easily spend, you know, five days there. Yeah. It's extraordinary countryside. You have this in Kakadu, for example, you have these really barren granite hills, a belt of which runs through part of Kakadu National Park. And to the southwest of that, you have sort of timber forested areas that eventually then drifts down into central Australia and you have some of the great deserts down there. If you were standing once again in Kakadu and looked to the east, you'd be looking towards Arnhem Land and you'd see these amazingly verdant um, wetlands of which there would be crocodiles and, and, you know, poisonous snakes hidden amongst the, the green grasses there and you'd probably see wild buffalo because they still roam up in that area. And then there's also the magnificent you know, cave art from Indigenous Australians of, of that region. And the cave art, is, cave art is quite extraordinary and most of it is painted in overhangs that in the past millennia have acted as um, seasonal dwelling places for the tribes in that region. So that's just Kakadu, but, you know, it does take a while to get up there. <laughs> that's the thing. And then you have to drive down from Darwin into Kakadu. Um, I guess an easier one would be to just fly into Sydney jump in a car, drive over the Blue Mountains, and before you know it, you're heading towards, you know, you're into the plains and into western New South Wales. So then you're heading out towards areas like Broken Hill where gradually, you know, the settlements get sparser and sparser and you just have this flat land in front of you and, you know, a golden horizon basically as you're heading into the, you know, the west and the setting sun. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous. And you've still got a bad drought, have you? Yeah, so it's not quite as bad for us as it is for people in far western and western areas of New South Wales. Queensland had some relief with a cyclone that came down and, in fact, in some areas it, it did a lot of, you know, it was quite devastating. People lost a lot, you know, hundreds of thousands of cattle were lost up in that area from that cyclone a couple of months ago. But other people received good runs through their rivers from it um, and some good rainfall as well. So our cattle are currently out on the stock route. So that's Crown land and the government, state government allows you to walk your cattle along, along those routes so you can feed them okay. if there's feed there. Great. So up until a couple of weeks ago in our area, those routes were closed and now they've recently been opened up. So we're just sort of taking our cattle along 
for a walk for a couple of weeks to see if we get another change in the weather. Historically, we don't get a lot of rain at all in April until perhaps after Anzac Day, and then we can look at a change then. Mm-hmm. Some of our, you know, we've got all these archives um, in the family because I guess we've been around for a while in the bush yeah. and we're just particularly good hoarders, really. <laughs> and so some of the things that we have, like a rain charts, and you used to be able to go back and look at those and you'd get a fair indication of what, what rain slash weather conditions could be expected during any given month. But, of course, these days with global warming and the impact of climate change, it's becoming far more difficult to be able to, to do that. And certainly the Weather Bureau is up and very much up in the air. You know, they, they work on eight or ten computer models and they can really never make, you know, mm-hmm. top or tail mm-hmm. of things either, mm-hmm. the way things are. Mm-hmm. Look, turning away from the specific books to your wider career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you would credit as the secret of your success? Jenny, that's a difficult question. (laughs) Um, Yeah, probably not. I guess if I look at it from my own personality point of view, um, what I've always been reasonably good at is discipline. Um, so I'm quite a disciplined person and I think that working abroad helped me with that. I think um, being involved in a family business helped me with that as well and then deciding to, you know, then try my hand at, at you know, a longer piece of fiction as well with my first novel. Um, discipline has been a major part but I, I don't think that there's any one profession that I've been involved in that has probably credited with me with, yeah, helping me. Yeah. With my writing, except I suppose that I actually did a, a master's in literature and creative writing a few, quite a few years ago now, probably over 10 years ago. And whilst I don't think that helped me improve my writing, it did fine-tune my discipline because I had to get used to, you know, submitting essays and et cetera mm-hmm. on time, mm-hmm. in a timely manner. Mm. Turning to Nicole as reader, you know, this is called The Joys of Binge Reading. Now, I'm not quite sure if you've ever been a binge reader, but we'd be interested to know what you do like to read. You know, I read a whole variety of different things, um, mainly because a good story is a good story, so I'm I'm never constrained by by genre. So I like Patricia Cornwall, so the the Scarpetta novels. I like David Maloof, so he's an Australian writer on the literary side. Um, Philippa Gregory, so she writes, well, I think, her last series of books. I suppose that's, that's a series. There you go. I've read one <laughs> series. So she, that's the Tudor, Tudor, a lot of it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah the Tudor story. And she's great. <laughs> yes, she is. Um, yeah, she's excellent. Sometimes I think there could be, this is just me putting my two cents in, um, there could be a little bit sort of, you know, I, I don't often find her characters very warm because she writes in such a sort of matter-of-fact, um, very story and take, I guess, yes. on the work. Yes. But the work is so interesting. Yeah, the world so, is, yeah. Yeah, so, mm. yeah. So, don't you think? I mean, yes. she's just, yeah, she's done so much research. Um, so, yeah, so I like that. And my old go-to is Ernest Hemingway. Oh, I just love really? Hemingway. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, when I was a teenager, I read his novella, The Old Man and the Sea. Yes. And when I read that book, I didn't realise at the time because I was only about 14 or 15, but I became really enamoured with this old man in this 
rickety boat trying to land this enormous fish. And it was only afterwards when I was in my final year at, um, at boarding school, my English teacher said to me, she said, you do understand why that story resonates with you, don't you, Nicole? And I was like, well, it's a man in a boat with a fish and, and it's a nature thing that really got to me, this, this battling of the elements. And she said, yes, that's right, because you come from, you know, a farming business, a farming background. And it clicked. I thought, that's right. Every time my father walks outside the back gate, he's battling something and it's nature. Yes. So literally now I see that, you know, I'd fallen in love with one of these great themes in literature, which is man versus nature. So that's another reason, I guess, why it's so important for me to have that strong sense of place in my novels because it does really help mould the characters and their progress through the narrative as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, we are starting to run out of time, sadly. So if we look back to the beginning and then back to today, at this stage in your writing career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change? Um, Yes, well, my first book, The Bark Cutters, because I'd written other things before that. I'd written travel articles and, you know, for in-flight magazines, written for newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. And when I decided to write a full-length novel, I thought, wow, you know, what will I write about? But I chose as my first novel, as I said earlier, interweaving narrative, two distinct time frames, followed four generations of a family, which is a little bit much for your first book. And it took me eight years to write. (laughs) Yes. A big big project. (laughs) Yeah, a big project. But I was working full time and that's when I was doing my master's as well and I was publishing some other things as well. I was actually publishing a volume of poetry at that stage. Um, And and I just thought I'd... I had bitten off a lot to do and that's why it took me, um, I guess, so long to write it. But, of course, the book was very successful and it was shortlisted for Australian Book Industry Award and I had never thought what was going to happen next after I'd written The Bark Cutters. Um, But because it was so successful, it actually gave me the confidence to continue. So, yeah, so I think that that's very interesting when I look back now. Since then. I guess, I suppose it would have been, yes, yeah, better if I'd chosen something a little easier to write. Uh, the positive from taking eight years to write your first one is that I've become faster. <laughs> and just to, you know, go back to the books, your second book, A Changing Land, which was also a top 10 bestseller, it continued that story of the family in the bark cutters, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I had no intention of writing a sequel. Um, and as we know, publishers don't always like sequels because they they take the view that if you have one book that's great, your readership isn't necessarily going to remember um, to buy the sequel when it comes out 12 or 18 months later after after the next one. So they prefer standalone works. So the second one to The Bark Cut as a Changing Land, I wrote as a, even though it was sort of pitched as a sequel, I did write as a standalone work as well. Um, But, yes, I certainly didn't set out to write it, but the publishers were very keen for me to write a sequel to the first one because the bark cutters were so successful. And, it, you know, it worked in my case, yes. which was great. And also, I guess, for me, because suddenly I had taken eight years to write a first novel and then I was presented with a two-book contract and I was like, oh, I've just signed this and now it's, I've got 12 months to write the second one. <laughs> so I had everything in my head already. I had the background and, you know, the characters and the history. So that helped me as well. So I was fortunate in that regard. Yeah. Look, we are coming to the end now. So what is next for Nicole, the writer? What are your projects for the next 12 months? 
So I'm about um, nearly halfway through another novel. So it's due for submission October of this year. So I'm sort of, yeah, still at the crafting stage. Really, it's not until I get to about 50,000 words that I have a good grasp on where the story's going. So that's sort of where I'm up to. Do you have a title for that one yet? No, I don't. I don't yet. No. I've had, I did have one title and then the publisher sort of has suggested another one. So at the moment it's it's a little bit up, yeah. up in the air. Yeah. We said we'd sit on it and see what came to light. So you like to do pretty well a book a year at the moment. Is that how it works? Well, I actually had a break um, a couple of years ago. So Stone Country, my most recent one, it came out in, in March here in Australia. And before that, I hadn't had a book out for about two years. Uh -huh. So I have, I have just had a break and then I'll write. I'm, obviously, I'm writing this this new one and then I'll sort of sit back and have a think and see what happens next. Let the creative well fill again. Yeah, I think so. You do have to um, have a little bit of a break because I do do so much research that obviously you have to have the, you know, the brain has to recoup mm. as well. Mm. So I am very aware of that. Mm. You know, I love writing, mm. but you do need to have those breaks now and then. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and, and can they find you online? You're obviously doing this tour for five weeks, so you're going to be seeing a lot of your readers in person, but the rest of the time, can they reach you online? Yes, so I've, I have a website, which is nicolealexander.com.au. So that's pretty easy to find. And then from there, you can click through to my Facebook, Instagram and, and Twitter feeds as well. So I'm fairly active on all of those channels. I do have a blog on my website um, as well, where I talk, uh, you know, mainly about Pastoral Australia, but some other odds and ends that might strike me at the time too. Um, so yeah, a, a little bit of a mixture of things, but yes, I'm certainly across most social media channels. Thank you, Nicole. Look, it's been fantastic talking. It really has been uh, um, an introduction to a world that many people just don't have a clue about. So it's fantastic to have you on today. Thank you, Jenny. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.com.
www.thepowerofco.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.